This is The Ethicist, a podcast from The New York Times Magazine. I'm Amy Bloom, novelist and writer-in-residence at Wesleyan University, and along with my co-hosts, we're going to debate and then answer some of the tricky ethical questions Times Magazine readers send in every week. And let me introduce my co-hosts. Jack Schaefer is a media writer for Politico. Welcome, Jack. I'm also the most ethical one at the table. (laughs) Good to know. And Kenji Yoshino, a law professor at NYU. Hi, Kenji. Uh, Hi, Amy. Coming up, we'll tackle reader questions about conflicts of interest and putting your best foot forward, even if it's in someone else's shoe. Okay, so here's our first question about a genuine crisis of conscience with high stakes. I'm a pediatric intensive care physician. My colleagues and I take care of very sick children. Recently, a colleague of mine was taking care of an extremely sick child. He is a very good doctor. The child was expected to survive at the time of admission, but the medical team made mistakes and the child died. The parents, as well as everyone involved in her care, were devastated. The institution conducted a root cause analysis, RCA, where the committee conducting the RCA found that the medical team made mistakes in diagnosis, which led to inappropriate treatment and eventual death. The leader of the team resigned. Case closed. I feel guilty. I was close to the family and took care of the child several times. After the RCA, I thought our institution had the obligation to tell her the results of the RCA. I think they will pursue litigation if the results of the RCA are disclosed to the family of the deceased. I would sue my hospital as well if I had found out that they had made a mistake and my child died. I have spoken to many of my colleagues. I think whenever an RCA is conducted, the results, positive or negative, should be shared with the family. Many of my colleagues think a physician's ethical obligations to a child ends when the child dies. I argue that this means that whenever there is a bad outcome because of medical error, the logical outcome would mean that the physician should hope for death in order for self-preservation. I'm sure that I'm conflating many pillars of ethics. I want to advocate for my patient even when she has died. I feel like I've been handed a basket of snakes, and it's now my job to untangle them and sort them and label them. This is a long question that the doctor writes to us. Nowhere in the letter does he allege malpractice. He says mistakes were made. I think mistakes are made everywhere are these understandable mistakes. I feel like I need some legal advice here. Hey, Kenji, jump right in uh, to sort of sort this one out. Doctors obviously make mistakes, as do car mechanics and journalists and um, burger flippers. So I'd like to tease that out first before, you know, I start sorting snakes. Well, I guess what I would say, Jack, and I'm loath to interrupt or add on to anything that the most ethical person at the table has said, but... uh, you know, for me, the law comes into this at the back end, actually, which is that it comes in in a negative way. I think that we would have much more transparency with regard to the results of RCAs if doctors weren't worried about litigation at the other end, if they disclosed that they had made a mistake, an understandable one or not. In this case, I think the fact pattern suggests to us that the mistake was not within the ordinary band because the team leader resigned. But I think for me, just taking a step back, obviously this is an agonizing question. I think it's one of the hardest, if not the hardest ones we've tackled so far. Obviously, this is a tragic scenario, and obviously the pediatrician is a very caring 
and compassionate person who feels very strongly for the deceased child. All of that said, I don't think that the right remedy is to take justice into his own hands and to go around the hospital and to notify the parents, whether or not the hospital has a good or bad policy about the RCA. We did some follow-up with the letter writer, and he said sometimes they disclose, sometimes they don't. So they don't have a categorical position either way of never disclosing or always disclosing. But even if a mistake was made by the hospital in not disclosing this RCA, the proper form of redress is to make the strongest case possible for why disclosure should be made in this instance, rather than taking it outside of the community, the hospital, and doing something that can't be undone once it's done. Yes, there was an interesting and useful piece by Ben Rich at UC Davis on medical error and medical ethics, in which he states that statistically the thing that most often leads to lawsuits is the discovery of a cover-up on the part of the hospital by the family of um, the deceased or damaged patient. I agree with Kenji in this case. I think this is complicated and high stakes, and I don't think that the letter writer is conflating pillars of ethics. I think that the letter writer is trying to serve his conscience and be an ethical actor and also see that good is done. And I think it may be in that last piece that some of the complications arise. I did ask a couple of doctor friends who uh, worked in hospitals, and one of them said, it is probable that if this letter writer went directly to the family without discussing it further with the hospital, and that family did in fact file suit as the letter writer would be encouraging them to do from his letter, that it's very possible that that doctor would never find himself employed again, which also has an impact on all the future people that he would be able to serve as a doctor. There are RCAs that are revealed to the family and RCAs that are not. But since this letter writer was not an actual part of the medical team that provided the care, there is still some information that he does not have. And so he may not really be in the best or strongest ethical position to go to the family and specifically point a finger. I understand that his point would be you should pursue the RCA. It seems to me that the letter writer's next step should probably be go to the hospital's legal counsel or risk management team or the RCA team and find out more. Since hospitals now have more of a culture of safety protocol Anyone in the process could have raised concerns about the procedure, and therefore fault may be a little more difficult to fairly assess, especially since the letter writer is outside of the team. He may not be in the best position to assess blame, but he is certainly in an excellent position to encourage the hospital to share the RCA findings, for starters. I was waiting for the letter writer to invoke the word whistleblower. Mm -hmm. But because he didn't, it makes me think that the inappropriate treatment misdiagnosis is a one-off here, that it is in the realm of, of a mistake. And this may or may not be helpful or even on point, but it does strike me that if we think about good faith reasons for why the hospital might not want to disclose the RCA, you know, other than fear of litigation, which given the mess that our litigation system is in this area might 
actually be a good faith reason. But if we think about other good faith reasons, it might be that there's less likely for a call to be made for an RCA if the idea is that all RCAs are going to be made public, leaving the hospital vulnerable. And so therefore, the capacity to raise the level of care for everybody means that there has to be a certain cone of safety. There was a famous report, slightly dated now from 1999, but still I think pretty striking, that estimated that you know 44,000 to 98,000 deaths a year occur due to medical errors. So this is a, a very widespread phenomenon that you know, hospitals are trying to obviously minimize. But, and I guess the final thing I would, I would say in the, in the name of trying to come up with good faith explanations for why the hospital may have engaged in the behavior that engaged in of, of non-disclosure, I, I sort of resisted the letter writer when he said, if you go with the hospital's reasoning, then logic means that the physician should hope for the patient's death for the sake of the physician's self-preservation. But I can think of lots of reasons why you would have a much greater obligation of disclosure if the patient didn't die than if the patient did die, was um, adduced in one of these hypotheticals in an ethics journal that I was reading about this. If there's a bad lung and a good lung, and you make an error and you cut out the good lung by mistake, but the patient survives, then you do have an obligation to go to the patient and say, we're sorry, we cut out the good lung, not the bad lung, so therefore you're going to need to take X, Y, and Z steps in order to survive and to increase your longevity as much as possible so that you know we don't compound our own mistake. Whereas that is unfortunately off the table where the patient has died. And so I just want to say that there could be good explanations that the hospital could come back with that might even satisfy the letter writer. And so that would also lead me towards the idea that the first port of call has to be the institution and the hospital and the community rather than going outside of the system in order to uh, deal directly with the parents. I think the ethical position that we are encouraging this ethical physician and this concerned person to take is first go to the hospital and get some answers about the particular RCA for this case before you consider going to the family directly. Yeah, I think that's prudent. I mean, what we know from the letter writer's assessment is that the doctor who made the mistake is, quote, a very good doctor. And resigned. And resigned. He's not alleging malpractice. He's not, you know, the physician didn't go into the diagnosis coked up or strung out on hillbilly heroin and make mistakes because he made poor choices in, I guess, his mental hygiene before he came into the hospital. Yeah, I think that the soundest thing is to approach the hospital itself. It's a really wrenching issue, you know. And it, it is. It's, it's, and I'm grateful to the letter writer for presenting such a profound question because I think that the interests on, on both sides are extremely strong. I mean, as a parent, I obviously would want to know, but it may be that the process values here are, are more important. All right, let's dive into the next letter on how to create an ethical atmosphere. All of the board members at an organization I volunteer for are volunteers there themselves and have to sign a yearly form disclosing any potential conflicts of interest. In the past year, the board member in charge of procurement took a full-time position working with a major supplier to the organization. We don't want to penalize a hardworking board member, but his position requires that he make many purchases from this supplier. 
It seems trivial and overreaching to require competitive bids on small purchases, though some may be several thousand dollars. The supplier has been a longtime provider to the organization and has always provided good service. Is it possible to give a blanket waiver of the conflict for any purchases and still allow the volunteer in charge of procurement to purchase from his employer? Few other members of the organization are willing to take on this task. As Howlin' Wolf once sang in Going Down <laughs> Slow, great googly moogly. Your fellow board member does not have a potential conflict of interest. He has a conflict of interest. In my book, purchases of several thousand dollars are not small. I once had a good time in New York City on several thousand dollars. So if the provider has such a good track record with your organization, make sure that competitive bids are solicited to make sure your organization maintains what I assume is also a good track record and uh, move procurement into a new set of hands. I know I agree with you entirely. I think competitive bids for larger purchases, and I agree with you about the number, is a pretty common standard. Of course, nobody wants the board member to be penalized, but it sounds like it would be clearest and most ethical to relieve him of this particular role. Other people may not want to take on this task, but it seems as if to be in the clear ethically, they should take on these tasks. And that is what the idea of conflict of interest principles is supposed to help us resolve. And I agree with Jack. It's not potential. It is present and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, for me, this is kind of a relief in contrast to the first one, because I agree with both of you, and I think this is a really easy one. So let's take the letter writer at his word and to say generally these are uh, small purchases. But one of the reasons that we have conflict of interest rules, in my view, is to take people out of the path of temptation. So even though these may be small purchases, it could be that this position could lead to larger purchases precisely because a person is in or has a capacity to perhaps increase the order or to make the sum of money larger. And so that would be another reason to support the conclusion that my dear colleagues have have come to. I think that the other thing that I want to flag here is that conflict of interest principles are often in place not just for the underlying issue of justice, but also for the appearance of justice. So if this individual were to be in this position and it made a newspaper headline that uh, this organization you know, allowed this person to procure even though they were getting paid by the supplier, that would look terrible for the organization. And so as a great Supreme Court justice says, sometimes the appearance of impropriety or injustice is as bad as the injustice itself. And so for all of those reasons, you know, I would say that there is a clear ethical issue here and that the ethical thing to do is to corral some other member of the organization into doing this task. Again, we would give three nickels down and say several thousand dollars is a lot of money from our point of view and competitive bids for larger purchases is a common standard for this and we would suggest that somebody else on the board should take on this task so that the board can be ethically in the clear and give neither the appearance of impropriety nor the act of impropriety. On to our last question about the extent to which a little polish can be a lot phony. I'm looking for a new job in the nonprofit sector, and I'm considering using a resume service to write my resume and cover letter. Part of me feels morally conflicted about this process. 
Is it fair to have someone else write the two materials that show the quality of my writing skills to my future employer? So it seems to me the answer here is also easy in that the answer is no in the way that the question is posed. You know, So to the extent that we are saying this shows the quality of your writing skills, you are not being transparent or honest about your writing skills vis-a-vis your future employer if you have somebody else write the materials that are supposed to be evidence of that. On the other hand, if we apply that as our touchstone, it's not obvious to me that having somebody help you with your resume is reflective of your writing skills. And it's not obvious to me that the separate skills that might go into writing a resume, like organizational skills you know, on paper, are necessarily that illuminating to the employer. So I would actually drive a wedge between the resume and the cover letter. Fine to have someone look over your resume and say, you might want to organize this differently. But with regard to something that you're offering to the employer as, this is a skill that I bring to the table, but that evidence of the skill has actually been written by somebody else, there there's clearly an ethical issue. I feel like I would have been very grateful earlier in my life to have a resume service to write my resume. I don't really consider that to be an example of your writing skills. It is certainly an example of your organizational skills and probably even more an example of producing a resume skills, which may or may not be part of your job. As for the standard cover letter, presuming that the letter writer gets what the letter writer has paid for, they're going to get a standard cover letter. And if this person has actual writing skills, I think they are doing themselves a disservice by having the company write their cover letter. If you have writing skills, you should be writing your own cover letter so you can demonstrate them. If you don't have writing skills, it may be very useful to you to have somebody else write your cover letter, but that would suggest that you don't, in fact, have the writing skills. In your own best interest, if you have writing skills, write the cover letter. In terms of the resume, I would probably take the position that should the interviewer say to you, did you write this resume completely on your own, or did you have Resumes Are Us help you out? I would tell the truth graciously. As someone who used to sift through hundreds of resumes when I put jobs up for application, I looked very closely at the quality of a resume. Are words spelled correctly? Is the punctuation done intelligently and and by the rules of the book? So I've spent a lot of time actually looking at at resumes. So I I wouldn't dismiss the art and the craft of resumes so quickly. Um, I wonder if we'd want to explore whether it would be ethical for the letter writer got some assistance, that is, proofreading or a little bit of coaching in, in the creation of their writing sample. I'm with the both of you. You can't get someone else to write a sample of work that you cannot replicate in the workplace. But just for the purpose of argument, because I find myself agreeing with you too much, and that's just destroying my ego, how much assistance could this job applicant expect to get uh, producing the writing samples without hitting some sort of ethical tripwire. Right. And where where is that tripwire, I think, is, is an excellent question. And I would certainly rather hire somebody who was smart enough to proofread their resume and ask a friend to proofread their resume than somebody who turned it in with a bunch of typos. I just think that that's showing common sense. And I have to say, 
I have no problem with the idea that somebody has used a resume service to present the most effective and coherent resume that they can, especially if they know this not to be among their strongest skills. Yeah, it's fascinating. I think that we all agree in principle that the touchstone here is, are you misrepresenting your skills to your future employer? In this case, what's going on is that we could either say, with regard to the resume and the cover letter, you're not really misrepresenting your writing skills to your employer because resumes and cover letters don't fall within the bucket of things like a writing sample that would reflect your writing skills. And Amy, I also hear you saying there's an additional skill here, which is to say this person is smart enough to know their weaknesses and to get somebody else's eyes on it, right? And so we could actually give them credit for that. But what if, just to make this slightly murkier, you know, you're not going to have the chance on the job to vet every single piece that you write with a bunch of other colleagues to make sure that it's perfect. I have to say that I am probably projecting here, but uh, when I look at this, I think, and this is my own life experience spending, you know, a good chunk of my life in Japan, where you know, I would be very underconfident about my resume and writing skills in Japanese. And I would definitely circulate that if I were actually trying to land a job in Japan, my resume and my cover letter too. So I immediately sort of read this as a, this is this is somebody who is not that confident in their writing skills or maybe perhaps in their English language skills and um, going to somebody. So that may be my own projection. But it strikes me that in that instance, it's obviously a continuum, but getting too much help does a disservice, as Amy, you were saying earlier, not only to the employer, but also to me, because you know it's much better for the employer to know that I have a certain level of Japanese before they hire me, if they hire me, than to hire me, and then for us to both learn after the fact that it's not a good match. But it seems like we all do agree, and let me just tweak my earlier formulation uh, so that it's a slightly subtler. The principle here is it's unethical to misrepresent relevant skills, right? Skills that would be relevant to that potential employer, right? That's what we're all dealing with here. And the rest is the application of that principle. Are we agreed on that? I am no, agreed with that. No, I don't think so. I, oh, think you just, I think you just gave me some daylight, a, a big gap through which I can run. Uh, who among us at this table has not misrepresented their skills to an employer? When asked, how's your French? Oh, my French is pretty good. When you haven't opened a French textbook since second semester French in, in high school, or your prospective employer says to you, know anything about particle physics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, <laughs> I could handle particle physics if the job of delivering packages included particle physics. The dance of the, uh, the employment review in which this resume is a part of is a little bit like poker. There is I think, ethical leeway not to tell a laser, precise, five nines, reliable, absolute truth when being interviewed for a job. And in this particular case, I would probably want to agree with the two of you that letter writers doing themselves no uh, real benefit to claim to have skills. We assume these skills are going to be used at writing if they don't have them. But I think I would back off about the whole idea of misrepresenting skills as being somehow ethically verboten in any way, shape, manner, or form in a job interview. See, Jack, uh, that's a great 
way of putting it, but uh, when you said who among us has not misrepresented themselves in some way. Don't say it's, don't say you haven't. Come on. No, no, no. I was going to say. The sodium pentothal has kind of come out and (laughs) and the lie detector. I would say absolutely I have, but I I heard your question to be, or uh, echo of your question to be, you know, who among us is totally ethical. So I would say, yes, I have done that, but I don't feel proud of having done that, nor do I feel like I was ethical in the moments when I did do that. So, you know, yes, I don't think it's enough to say we've all done it. I think the question is, have we done it and felt like we were ethical? And you've made a case for why you believe that you can do it and be ethical. I would say that let's leave a little bit of room to say to say that we've all done it is not to say that when we did it, we were behaving in an unethical way. What do you think, Amy? I feel that using a resume service is entirely ethical. I don't see any reason why somebody shouldn't do it. It's a very, very specific kind of form. And if you would like help in adhering to that particular form, especially if um, you are looking for a new job and you don't feel that you've been particularly successful with your resumes, I think you can ask your Aunt Sally, who's you know very skilled at writing resumes, or you can ask the resume service. But Amy, how is it not misrepresenting your skills to farm out the creation of your resume? And I do think that a resume is reflective of the caliber quality of the candidate. Why would you say that that doesn't mis- misrepresent skills? Well, the, the ability to the ability to spell, to punctuate, to know what goes into a good resume. It is a snapshot of a person and their skills. And it seems to me that if you're farming this out, I mean, I wouldn't give this person 50 lashes, but it seems that maybe. But where is the tripwire? As as you said earlier, it's like, where is the tripwire? So my niece comes to me and says, Aunt Amy, would you take a look at my resume? Mm -hmm. And I say, honey, it would be better if you put this here at the top and it would be better if all of your verb forms conform to one another and, oh, look, you missed a comma. I don't feel that my niece, in then turning in her improved resume, has misrepresented. What if, she so brings it, you, what if she brings you her cover letter and you say, boy, this is ass backwards. You buried your lead. You've misspelled all these words. Don't you know the first thing about uh, verb agreement? And you rewrote, rewrote that for her or gave those, her those suggestions. With, and then she turns that in. Would that be misrepresenting her skill set? I don't feel that it is. I feel that should somebody come to me for that kind of help, I am happy to give it. I don't feel that I am helping them misrepresent themselves. I feel that I am helping them produce a better document. I actually wouldn't do it for somebody who I thought was applying for a job for which they did not have the skills. Are book authors who use uncredited ghostwriters acting unethically? Are they misrepresenting their skills and talents? It's so funny that you went there because I was going to say, Amy, I have a really bad novel that I wrote when I was in college. Could you please take a look at it and then make it, you know, do your magic on it and then we'll publish it under my name? I guess if there was something in it for me, I I might say (laughs) yes because I might think, oh, lucky me not to have my name on that book. (laughs) But I really don't feel that editorial assistance with a resume or a cover letter transgresses. I think if you push the continuum, you could certainly find a point at which there is an ethical transgression. But this particular letter, for me, does not contain that. Um, And I think it's probably because I have 
had a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, bring me their resumes and bring me their cover letters and a lot of students. And I am glad to help them and um, feel that I'm actually behaving ethically because I am giving them assistance, which allows them to, you know, approach gainful employment without misrepresenting them. Yeah. And it also, I mean, to that point, one thing that I think I at least have not fully given um, weight to here is people's capacity to learn and grow, right? So, you know, the idea is, okay, you help them with their resume and their cover letter, but in the process of being helped to do that, they may actually be able to go on and do the next one themselves. In a similar vein, once they get this job with the future employer and the future employer puts them through training with regard to whatever skills they need for the employment, they may be able to, you know, learn and grow in that in that capacity as well. So, you know, I, I don't think this is just a, a one shot. No, but I like your addition because maybe the most ethical advice is, at least from my point of view, it is not unethical to use this service this time and learn how to do it yourself. And that would send it in the direction of, is it unethical for you to help your child with their homework? Um, Yes, of course, it's ethical to help them. It's not ethical. It's not actually helpful for you to complete your children's homework. And the letter writer has enlisted, I think, a sort of surrogate parent to help them complete their homework here. And I'm not comfortable with it. I don't think that the behavior is ethical, is representational of the skills of the of the applicant. That's what a resume is for. That's what the cover letter and writing sample is for. It seems that the letter writer is basically trying to bankrupt that system. My out here would be disclosure. I think the letter writer would be okay if the letter writer said to the interviewer, oh, by the way, I had a service write my resume and also write my cover letter. That would leave everybody with clean hands. But at that point, the uh, prospective employer would say, take a walk, I think. Yes. So, so I think we have a, uh, a, a two-one split here exactly. with um, Jack taking the stronger, more stringent standard, which is that it is not ethical to use a resume service to do your resume and cover letter. And Amy and Kenji saying, it is ethical. It is 100% ethical to use it for your resume. It is not unethical to use it for your cover letter, but we strongly encourage you to learn how to do this on your own. It's a 2-1 split. Is there a higher court that I can appeal this to? <laughs> or, or, is, or is this the... Is this there, it? There, yeah, the, the, the nine-member supreme ethicists, are, that, that's a podcast in development. Do you know anybody on the Roberts Court <laughs> who could help us? And that's it for the ethicists. If you'd like to send us your ethical quandary or comment on the show, you can reach us at ethicists at nytimes.com. If you'd like to leave a voicemail question for us to answer on the show, the number is 212-556-7070. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. Our producer is Ann Hepperman, and the music is by the band Broke for Free. For Jack Schaefer and Kenji Yoshino, I'm Amy Bloom. We'll talk to you next week on The Ethicists.